Hey, what's up? Welcome to Sons of Saturday. I'm Tyler Rojack with Luke Smith, and it's great to be back doing one of these. We've got a great show planned for today. So far, this offseason has been pretty quiet, at least for Notre Dame standards, which honestly is a great thing because the vast majority of the time, any news in the offseason is bad news. Yeah, so, why are you talking about that, that? You're like, are you trying to break up a no-hitter <laughs> right now? <laughs> I know. I just jinx it's It's too early. It's only February. But we're going to go back in time. 20 years when things weren't so quiet to revisit one of the craziest offseason storylines in Notre Dame history, the hiring of George O'Leary and his subsequent resignation just five days later. Pete Sampson from The Athletic will join us again to discuss how it all went down. That was actually his first year on the Notre Dame beat, so it was quite the rude awakening for our boy Pete there. I mentioned this in the last one. We're going to do a few of these over the course of the offseason where we take a look back at some of the biggest controversies in the program's recent history, mostly because it's kind of fun to investigate the, these things more and find out what really happened now that some time has passed and people are willing to talk about it more freely. And it also might make you appreciate just how good things are for Notre Dame football these days. So we're excited about that and what's to come. But before we go any further, Luke and I have an announcement. We do. We have expanded our platform and now have a website where we are publishing various articles with the help of a number of very talented writers, namely... Mike McDaniel and Ashton Pollard. Mike is the is Virginia Tech grad, 2015, I believe, and Ashton is a 2018 Penn grad now in grad school at Medill School of Journalism. So people that are a lot more qualified than us to be writing about things <laughs> like this and really excited to have them on board, both huge Notre Dame fans, which is nice. And Woj and I will also be dabbling a little bit in, in terms of writing, you know, I think I talked about this a little bit, or maybe this was something that Woj and I just discussed off air, but I realized after a full season of podcast coverage that I'm now somehow more obsessed with Notre Dame football than I ever have been in my life, and I'm looking for even more outlets to, to get my opinions out there. I don't know that people really care about them, but it's it's healthy for me, so I don't bring them into the workplace, I guess. But uh, so we're Therapeutic in a way. Yeah, cathartic, therapeutic, something like that. But we're really excited about it, really excited to have Mike and Ashton on board, and really excited to have people maybe read some of our stuff. We'll see if that happens or not, but wanted to make you all aware of that. Woj, you can kind of give more details on what the site's going to look like and, and kind of how they can access it. Yeah, so it's pretty easy, sonsofsaturday.com. When you get there, there'll be three tabs. The Notre Dame site will be on the far right there. It's like a one-stop shop for all of our podcasts. The feeds are always going to go through there. And you can also find three articles. We have articles up right now. Ashton has written an article about the top tight ends at Notre Dame since 2000, I believe. So tight end you. She ranks the top 10. And then Mike's going to discuss the quarterback situation a little bit. And then you've already got one up there. So go check it out now. Really excited about that. We'll have Mike and Ashton on and on our next show so you guys can learn about them. They can introduce themselves and once again show how much more qualified they are than we are. But, yeah, it's it's uh, pretty exciting. Absolutely. Excited to, to get more stuff out there because there's never enough Notre Dame football coverage in the world. All right. So now to George O'Leary. Yeah, before we get into any of this, I have to ask you, so this all happened in one really weird week in 2001, in December. Do you remember any of this at all? Okay, so I was five years old, mm-hmm. um, almost six, five and a half probably. No, I don't remember anything about him getting hired, him resigning. 
my first like true concrete memories of Notre Dame football was that 2002 season. Um, that's when I really remember watching all the games and sort like at least comprehending what was going on. So I knew that it, Notre Dame was in a bad place, like a really bad place. Like not the George O'Leary thing is honestly just the tip of the iceberg. There was Notre Dame was on probation when Bob Davy was there. They were getting sued by Joe Moore. Um, fans hated Davy. Even at the end of the Holtz years, things were going good. So things were just overall really, really bad. And in 2002, all I really could understand was that things had been bad. And then that year, Notre Dame was allegedly turning it around, even though they hadn't scored like an offensive touchdown until like week four or five. But yeah. the record was good. And, and Willingham was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Or, um, But yeah, that, that was all my, my memory of the whole thing. But I'm guessing you and your psychotic brain have like a photographic memory when you were what four yeah i mean people are gonna call bullshit on this and say shut the fuck up you were four years old there's no (laughs) way you remember any of this however um i i can in fact tell you exactly where i was when he resigned (laughs) and maybe honestly listen maybe this just shows how big this was at the time and it's hard to imagine a scandal of this caliber and magnitude unfolding in 2021 but Every year back in the day, my family used to go to our very close family friend's home in, in central Illinois, in a little town called Effingham, a few hours past Champaign, for a holiday party a few weeks before Christmas. He resigned on Friday, December 14th, and I remember sitting in the living room of our friend's place that Friday morning watching SportsCenter when the news broke. Like I said, like I, I wish I remember things that actually matter, but I brought this up to my mom a couple weeks ago when I was at home and I told her we were going to do this. And I asked her if she remembered it at all, and she did not, but I did, so go figure. But I said, well, this is where we were at that time, right? She's like, probably. So uh, it lines up. Like I said, I I wish my memory was used for better things, but I do remember that that part of it, the the resigning, and just kind of how strange it was and how my parents and their friends just had a very, like, are you kidding me sort of reaction to it. But that's kind of the extent of it for me. But as we look further into this, this thing was even really wilder than I could have imagined. It really was. So we'll recap a little bit because I'm sure most of you are at least semi-familiar with what happened. But just to recap, Notre Dame finishes 5-6 and six in 2001. Bob Davies' tenure really never got going. And he was let go one day after their final game against Purdue. The athletic director at the time, Kevin White, was in a massive hurry to make a hire, which still doesn't make any sense because we got into this with Pete. Uh, He wasn't like a super hot commodity. But anyway, he hires George O'Leary a week later. He's introduced at at a press conference. There's a pep rally. They're selling shirts. The band's playing. It's a lot, okay? So George goes back to Atlanta. That's where he was the head coach at Georgia Tech before all this. He packs up his stuff. He moves to South Bend. Two days later after being introduced, it's his first day on the job. And it's the morning, like a couple hours into this, the former SID, John Heisler, comes into his office and asks him about, hey, uh, we noticed some uh, discrepancies in your resume because this reporter, Jim Fennell, who wrote for the Manchester Union Leader, was tracking down people who had played football with George O'Leary in college. The problem is... George O'Leary didn't play football in college. He wrote that he had played football at New Hampshire 33 years prior. So this reporter's asking around to these guys in the roster. They're like, huh, yeah, he he tried out or he was at camp, but that was it. 
And O'Leary, realizing he's in the wrong, kind of admits it, but like mostly brushes it off. He, says he had a knee injury. He had mono. I don't know. Same. The next day, yeah. That's why I didn't play another name. Yeah. That's same with me. Yeah, the my knee. He's got a knee. Yeah. So he, he somehow brushes it off, thinks he's in the clear. The next day, Lou Nani is vice president of public affairs and communications. He calls George, and he's like, George... Syracuse just faxed me a handwritten resume. Well, maybe not resume, but he hand wrote his biographical information for the Syracuse Media Guide because he was hired to be their assistant coach in 1980. Okay. So now, George, he's like, all right, I'm out. He offers to resign immediately, but the school says, hold off. Okay. We'll figure it out. This, we're going to take a beating for this. We'll just say it was a mistake. Um, but first, is there anything else on there that, is a lie. George goes, yeah, obviously I was there paraphrasing, but that whole master's degree at uh, NYU, yeah, didn't get that. And then Kevin White and the former school president, Father Edward Malloy, meet, and I'm faking your academic credentials at Notre Dame. It's just obviously a huge, huge no-no. And they say, George, you got to resign. So, that's what happened. Yeah, I mean, the more you describe it, the more I think about it, it sounds like a Costanza situation, honestly. Like, <laughs> and this guy was a pretty successful college football coach and ended up kind of resurfacing his career down the road, but really just wild. And, you know, talking to people who were around South Bend at that time, their perspective on it is pretty interesting. We know we have a friend who's father was working for the university at the time and they hosted a welcome party for him like and he was only there for five days so i, I think they probably should have billed george for that to be honest with you like i, I don't know if they did but like <laughs> man that like you had a party thrown for you and you're canned five days later pretty wild um i think ultimately this left led to kevin white's departure to duke too because he was pretty embarrassed by what had transpired and kind of how that occurred under his watch so a really tumultuous and wild time and something that I think if I if that happened in 2021 Twitter would actually crash it would not survive it would be because Notre Dame fans are crazy I think it would be crazier than all all like the Wall Street bets stuff I really do I I seriously think that this would hold more importance than that did and just more outrage shock because of the shock value of social media yeah and that's the thing like this came out pretty quickly right and think about if the reporter were in today's times he's doing the stories like he could easily tweet out hey uh i'm asking a bunch of people he said he played at new hampshire and i'm i'm asking these guys and they say they had never even heard of him so this is sort of heartbreaking and the whole thing because it wasn't like any of these lies or any of these discrepancies on his personal background got him the job like that wasn't the case at all this actually all started in 1977 when he was a high school coach he was the first head coaching job was at liverpool high school in new york and i guess to sort of gain credibility with the players that's why he wrote that he played college football now what actually happened is he went to uh dubuque which is a d3 school in iowa dubuque and Dubuque. Dubuque. He goes there. He quits football after his freshman year. He stays at school for his sophomore year. He he transfers to New Hampshire because his dad had some connections there. And he gets him in. But yeah, he quits after, 
a, a week and a half in a preseason camp. So anyway, he's the high school coach now at Liverpool. He's far away from where he's from in, in Long Island, where his family has some pretty substantial credibility in the community. He thinks he's sort of out of sight, out of mind. So he writes in that he played football, which is like, but this all could have been avoided because a year into it, the superintendent at the school noticed these discrepancies and told the athletic director. So George O'Leary and the athletic director met and he asked him, George, did you lie about your background? And he sort of just kind of looked at him like, yeah, a lot of people do that. And right then and there, if the AD at the time had said, okay, we're letting you go, he fixes it and none of this happens, which is really, really crazy to think about, you know, just one little thing. One meeting in 1978 could have changed everything. It is. And also, you brought up Dubuque, Iowa, and my brother is actually going to play baseball at the real school in Dubuque, Iowa, the Loris College Hawks <laughs> this fall, and I'm wondering if my brother will last more than three days in Dubuque because <laughs> I've been there once or twice, and there's not a whole hell of a lot to do in 2021. I can't imagine that you don't there's say. a whole lot to do in 1975 either. But, yeah, and I mean – this is like with anything, how just one small decision can change so much. Obviously, this just kept rolling and rolling, and one little white lie went on top of another until you end up getting embarrassed and just with your pants down on national news. Yeah, so it starts there. He doesn't really make the change. He, so he gets the job at Syracuse, and they're asking him to fill out his biographical information. He hand writes it. He sticks with the lie that he played college football, even though someone just told him, like, they just got caught doing it. He lies, and basically, he needed, it's not a a total lie. He needed 48 credits to obtain his master's degree at NYU, and he got, like, close to 30. So he started, but he didn't finish, which actually seems to be the trend here, right? He starts playing college football at Dubuque. He quits. He goes to New Hampshire. He starts playing football again, and then he quits, which is so... I guess in contrast to his whole coaching style, because when we're reading about this, he's a hard ass, a hard ass, a mean, grumpy old Irish man that gets purple in the face and screams at his players a lot like Lou Holtz. And his whole thing was honesty and quitting was completely out of the question. So I think that in his mind, he's just a coach. And there's a good line in this article um, by Gary Smith, which if you guys are interested, read it. It's basically like a short book. There's so much information. But there's a good point there where as a young coach, you're basically just a giant bluff, right? Because if you're a coach who's only a few years older than the players, you you pr- got to act or put yourself on a pedestal that makes you seem way older and way more respectable when in reality he's probably going through you know, a lot of the same troubles that any young guy goes through. Yeah, and it reminds me honestly – of a lot of people that I know who have done something very similar to this, and some of them probably listen to this podcast, make sure what's on your resume accurately reflects your pedigree. You know, if you learn one thing from this whole episode, that sociology minor you never finished but had on your resume junior year when you got your finance job and then promptly dropped the, the minor, drop it from your resume too, unless you want a, a scene like this. Should you ever make it big, just, just just throw it out there because nowadays things are a lot easier to uncover too, and... I, I would just advise you to, to make sure your resume accurately reflects what you've actually accomplished. Yeah, it's a lot easier now to figure out. But I, I just I don't get it here with George because he's got the meeting in 78. He, he writes it again himself at, at Syracuse. And that's the thing. Like as a coach, 
no one's really looking at your resume. It's, it's not a job that people are really looking at. The only way you could screw it up is by lying. And he, he did that. And I guess this is sort of his personality. One great anecdote, he met his wife by lying to her because <laughs> he meets his wife at this uh, frat party. And he's like, hey, I want to set you up on this blind date with my friend. The friend didn't exist. And then he just showed up and was like, hey, well, my friend's not here. You want to go on a date with me? So sly move there. It obviously works out with George. They get married. But, like, I don't know. I guess this was just in his DNA, and it, it ultimately came out, and it sort of ruined – I don't want to say it ruined his life because he ended up bouncing back. We'll get into that in a second. But he just had so many chances to sort of fix this well before it even got to Notre Dame. His wife pointed it out while he was at Georgia Tech – and he would just basically would say, oh, it was the SID made a mistake. I need to change that. But he like he never did it, you know? It's weird. And it's almost like he was tempting fate for so long when you read articles that just talk about how many chances he had to correct it or put it in a place where nobody was ever going to see that he had previously lied and just didn't do it. So, you know, at the end of the day, do you even really feel bad for the guy? No, not at all. And... I don't think that hiring the modern, the 2001 equivalent of like, I don't even know who the, the modern day equivalent of George O'Leary 20 years ago is, but not somebody that I would want coaching at Notre Dame, basically, is what I'm trying to get at, like an okay coach. I, I He was pretty good. He, he like, was coming off a 7-5 and five season at Georgia Tech. Like, Yeah, the year before, though, he won National Coach of the Year. Okay, so I mean, like... I don't know. I, I really wish I had a better comparison for this. I keep wanting to say Matt Campbell, but people will freak out. I just don't think Matt Campbell's <laughs> that good of a coach. But um, I don't know. I, basically, he was not he was not worth all the baggage that it turned out he brought with him. No, it, he wasn't, and it just makes you question more and more, like why Kevin White was in such a rush to hire him because. Um, he wasn't a hot commodity. We talked about this with Pete. It was just kind of weird, the whole thing. But it is sad for George. He comes from a super Irish Catholic family, like the most Irish and the most most Catholic. They, uh, He had seven siblings. They grew up in Long Island. They're all diehard Notre Dame fans. He watched every game on every Saturday. It was sort of like his dream job his entire life. And it's really sad to think that he, you know, achieves his life goal, and then two years later, or two days later, sorry, it, it all just completely just blows up in his face, and it turns out to be uh, the most humiliating thing I, I could ever imagine for a person. But yeah, I mean, he had plenty of chances. He was a good coach. He was able to rebound. He was. He did have ultimately a pretty successful career at UCF. And found his peace in Disneyland, or sorry, Disney World. I guess, loved Orlando and, and really kind of got UCF on a path to where they are today, where, you know, they won a national championship in 2017. So, um. <laughs> yeah, so let's speculate a little bit. What happens if, you know, he stays on at Notre Dame? Because there's a lot of dominoes we could get into. There are. And the biggest one, and I tell this to everybody that'll listen, the one that shocked me the most when we were going through this, Notre Dame's offensive coordinator – when, with the hiring of Georgia Lyrics, he's bringing him over from Georgia Tech, was Bill O'Brien, former Texans coach, former Penn State coach, now Alabama offensive coordinator Bill O'Brien. I guess I have a couple points there for Bill O'Brien. One, what kind of success does he have in Notre Dame? Two, 
were they set up in a position to fail at Notre Dame had they stayed there that Bill O'Brien never gets off the ground and never runs the Texans into the ground then too? Um, but I, I don't know. Like it's just there's a lot of dominoes there. You don't know, and Pete talks about this a little bit, how recruiting would have changed. Some of the players we ended up with as a result of Tyrone Willingham and, and Charlie Weiss, did they end up coming to Notre Dame with a different coaching staff? There's no way of knowing. Kind of came from a different part of the country, recruited differently at Georgia Tech. So it's really interesting, and there's no way of knowing how he would have succeeded or not succeeded, but it it might have changed things at least in the interim I think my big takeaway is, and, and this was essentially what Pete said, is that he wasn't going to have the type of success that Brian Kelly has found in Notre Dame. And we would still, you know, maybe I don't know how we get to Brian Kelly if it's that same thing, but, like, everything in college football is so weird that you, you just don't really know how one little decision like this can really change a bunch of different programs. So after this whole thing goes down, he gets a job with the Vikings as defensive coordinator because a guy that he used to coach in high school was on the staff. Wasn't it Mike, wasn't um, it Mike so Tice? Get, it was, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yes. So, But he wasn't there long. He becomes the head coach at UCF in 2004. Uh, rough start for George. They go 0-11 his first year, but they turn it around quickly. His second year, they go 8-5. and And then they sort of kind of bounce around. It's like pretty inconsistent. Then they go 4-8. and They go 10-4. and Four and eight, eight and five, and then 2010 things really start to turn around. I guess a little bit better. They go 11 and three, and then just three years later is the year they go 12 and one. They win the Fiesta Bowl. That's Blake Bortles' year. Huge upset in the Fiesta Bowl. So he basically built UCF in what they are now. I know they had Scott Frost since then. I know that it's been sustained success since he left, but. Think about how different the whole college football playoff picture with if you think about it, the only reason why I shouldn't say the only reason, one of the main reasons why people even consider a group of five school to be in the playoff is because of UCF success. And that all started with George. So if that doesn't happen, you know, if, if Georgia stays on at Notre Dame and, and UCF like I, I'd say that they just stay on as a an irrelevant team in Orlando that no one's really ever heard of or, or really just cares about. Who knows if they even have football anymore? Like I could see UCF being a random school that doesn't just fold their football program. Like seriously, because what the hell were they before that? Oh, they were so bad. Yeah. And now what's their stadium called? Like the bounce house or something like that. Like it's, it's, it's a big deal down there as much as they're they national like champions. Pro- <laughs> self-proclaimed. Um, but yeah, no, without a doubt, had a lot of uh, reverberations around college football, and, and UCF is a perfect place to start with it all. But it is interesting to think about how different Notre Dame would have been, and I, I don't know if Charlie Weiss then ends up as our coach eventually. Like, it's 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 a lot of different things. So who really knows? But I'm blaming George O'Leary for the entire mediocrity of the mid-2000s. No, I'm not doing that. <laughs> there were a lot of parties involved. But... It's interesting, and um, that's why we're talking about it, because the best things to talk about are things that have no actual answers, and all you can do is hypothesize. All right, now let's talk about it with someone who was actually around the program at the time, might have a little bit more insight, Pete Sampson. All right, we got Pete Sampson from The Athletic here with us again today. Pete, we appreciate the time as always, and hopefully this is a refreshing change of pace from the topics you've probably been asked to discuss ad nauseum since the Rose Bowl. So we're going to be talking about the debacle 
That was the George O'Leary hiring, which happened right around the time you got started on the Notre Dame beat. So we'll start with you. When did you officially get your start, and how would you summarize your first full season on the job? Uh, so I started in March of 2001 at Google Illustrated. Um, didn't really know much about Notre Dame football at the time. So I wasn't quite sure the roller coaster ride that I was about to uh, hop onto. Uh, you know, first year was Bob Davies' final season. Um, I think it, it got off to a pretty sideways start against Nebraska and then just never really got on track from there. And then, um, you know, came to a kind of an unceremonious close at Purdue in December as the final game. And then, um, I want to, I I believe that the, the decision on Bob Davey had been made or at least reported, um, before that game really even got going, uh, that first weekend of December. And then the wheels were in motion for one of the weirdest months in Notre Dame football history very soon after. (laughs) And, and how would you describe the state of the Notre Dame football program at the time that Davey was fired? You know, it's, um, it's interesting looking back on it because the Lou Holtz era era was much closer in the rear view mirror at that point. Right. Like, so the, the idea that Notre Dame could be great was like, yeah, the, the guy before this guy was really good. Um, so getting back to winning 10, 11 games, being in the, you know, the BCS bowls was not that bizarre. And it just a year earlier, they were in the Fiesta bowl against Oregon state got blown out. Um, you know, it's the TJ Hushmanzada, Chad Johnson team. So it was like, it was right there. Um, no, it, it didn't feel like a program that was about to go into the, or stay in the wilderness. Like you felt like Notre Dame was about to come out of something opposed to ha- sort of have this really bizarre period in this, in the football program's history extended by about a decade. Um, so it was, I don't think people quite knew what was coming at that point. But even before George O'Leary, they were on probation, right? There was other problems going on with the program outside, like before the hire even happened, right? Yeah. And it's like, I mean, the Davy era was rocky. It was sort of a, a reminder of like the first time head coach doesn't work at Notre Dame because there's so many other uh, boxes that you need to check. You had the uh, age discrimination lawsuit with Joe Moore. Um, that was very ugly. And I mean, I was, that was before my time. But I mean, you think about if Notre Dame was going through that now with Twitter, I, I mean, it would just be unbelievable. Um, you know, it would, I mean, just the, the George O'Leary scenario in 2020 is unbelievable. Um, you know, in terms of the amount of oxygen that would suck up on sports center and talk radio and podcasts <laughs> and Twitter, the athletic Google, Illustrated, Irish Illustrated, everything, right. Um, it's just hard to get your head around how dominating a story this would be if it was happening right now. And I know that when Davey was there, the fans didn't like him in large part because of that lawsuit that you were just mentioning. So who did the fans want to hire at the time? Were they already on Urban Meyer? Had that train started yet? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. already started in 2001? Yeah, I, I mean, that was – it was before Urban Meyer. Uh, I'm, I think at that point it would, the infatuation was sort of more of the Bob Stoops mold. Um, okay. He was kind of earlier in his Oklahoma time. Um they had actually Oklahoma came to Notre Dame and lost. I, I want to say in 99 um, it might've been Stoops first year. Um, so he wasn't quite the sort of dominant national figure that, 
he would be just a few years later. But there wasn't, it wasn't Urban Meyer yet. The Urban Meyer infatuation, I think, really started in earnest year three of Tyrone Willingham yeah. when he was killing it at Utah. Um, right. One year at Bowling Green wasn't quite enough to like, <laughs> win people over. Um, yeah, I was like halfway kidding, but then again with Notre Dame fans. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you never I mean, know. it's like, yeah, everyone's coaching waiting here. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and at the time, how did you feel about George O'Leary and his fit at Notre Dame? Um, I think I was too young and naive to, to have a, a strong opinion either way. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I was 24 at the time or 23. And I, I, I do remember distinctly going into the Joyce center for his press conference with the band and the cheerleaders. And they were handing out shirts by George. It's O'Leary. <laughs> and I had not covered a coach introduction press conference. So, while I knew it was weird, I didn't know how weird it was. Um, and you just got the sense of like, wow, they are really selling this. Um, they're putting in a lot of effort to get you on board with George O'Leary as Notre Dame's next head coach. Cause I don't, I don't think at the time there was a whole lot. He wasn't like a hot name or anything. I mean, he was just sort of a, a coach who had done a good job for a very long time but was not, he was not the next Urban Meyer um, by any stretch of the imagination. Just, you're sitting in there during the press conference of the band and the cheerleaders and just thinking like, this just feels a little bit off. It's funny you bring up that shirt because when I, I told a friend we were doing this, his dad worked, still works in PR for, for Notre Dame, and he still has that shirt from when he was in second grade from 20 years ago. And it says he keeps it just, just to have. Um, but when we talked about this, so obviously there's no social media at the time, but According to different articles out there, the morning of his first day on the job, John Heisler, the former SID, approached George O'Leary about discrepancies on his resume. Um, but since there's no social media, you know, you kind of have a better chance to keep the story under wraps a little bit. When did you first get word that he might be in some trouble? I don't know what time of day it was, um, but I do remember going over to the Joyce Center. Uh, at that point, the football offices were still in there. There was no Goog at this point. And I remember sitting on the stairs going up to sort of that mezzanine level or the, where the hall of hall of fame is. And we were just sort of waiting for George O'Leary to walk out, which is another thing like in this day and age, like to imagine sitting on a bench outside the Goog waiting for Brian Kelly to walk out so you could ambush him. It's just completely bizarre. Um, and I, I just remember being very confused about what was going on. Um, you know, I'm like, this is literally, I haven't been on this beat for a full year and this is happening. Um, and just be just feeling very overmatched by the moment. Um, but sitting on those stairs, just waiting for coaches to walk out so we could talk to them. Um, I, I remember that very distinctly. And just this, this is a, this is a strange profession that I have chosen. And this is just like two days after he was hired, right? Yes. He had just moved from Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah, he was there, and we're just sort of waiting for anybody to walk out. Um, it's like paparazzi-style coverage of Notre Dame football at that point. So was it just known information amongst the writers? Like, like, did the general public have an idea yet? How was Notre Dame able to like keep it under wraps up until, I guess, the bomb went off, and, and then everyone found out? I That I don't really remember um, in terms of like what Notre Dame did to sort of keep people at bay, but I do... 
I do. There was just a lot of uncertainty about it. Like you're because the story was so bizarre, right? Like it's not there wasn't a precedent of like, well, this happened five years ago and Notre Dame did X. So they're going to do X again. Um, this was like, could they really fire a head coach they just hired over a resume discrepancy? Um, couldn't he just say, I'm sorry, I, that like, or blame an SID from uh, two jobs ago, um, that this was a resume item that never got corrected, but that did not happen. Um, and I think even up until the moment, like when the news broke that he was out, I was this, I guess, a, a young reporter who wouldn't, just couldn't get my head around this, this being the end game for George O'Leary at Notre Dame. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and looking back at stories that they, they, there's one anonymous division one athletic director quoted to the Chicago Tribune telling him no one checks backgrounds about a week after this all went down. I have to imagine this played a role in, in kind of changing the vetting process for head coaches. Um, but if this was to happen today, I mean, it would never happen today. But if it was, can you imagine how much worse that would have looked for the school? I mean, I know we see it. Notre Dame's on probation right now for something really silly, and people see just the word probation on Twitter, and there's a million different reactions. I, I can't really imagine what the reaction would have been like. No, I mean, it would just, it would be over the top. Um, you know, it's, it, the O'Leary tenure is brought up every time Notre Dame hires a new coach, head coach or assistant coach about why it takes so long. Um, and I mean, it was interesting to bring it all the way up now to like the announcement of Marcus Freeman as a new defensive coordinator felt kind of rushed. Um, and Notre Dame like sort of got out there ahead of, ahead of itself a little bit to be like, Hey, you know, there's going to be a formal hiring process, but this is our guy. That's really the first time I can remember Notre Dame doing something like that since George O'Leary. Um, and their hiring process is so much more in-depth and detailed than I'm assuming pretty much every other school out there because it all goes back to what happened in 2001. That's just not something you forget or want to endure again. So you didn't have the personal interaction with the fans probably as much as you do now without social media, like we were mentioning earlier, but what was the reaction? Cause like you were saying, like O'Leary wasn't a super hot commodity. He won Bobby Dodd coach of the year award in 2000, but I think in 2001 that Georgia tech was preseason top 10 and then they finished seven and five. So there obviously wasn't a huge want for the fan base to hire him. And now this happens. Was it kind of like, all right, cool. We can get someone else. How would you describe the fan reaction to it all? It was so brief. I don't remember it, to be honest. Um, you know, it's it, like, it was just, it was over before it started. Um, you know, it wasn't like the gnashing of teeth in real time that you see on social media today. Like some of the things that have gone on at Tennessee over the years, like, you can sort of know what the fan reaction is hour by hour or minute by minute. But at that point it was more like people are sending you letters. And by the time they <laughs> arrive, George O'Leary is no longer here. Yeah, that is wild. I guess one other thing we've looked at as we've looked back into this is kind of some of the bigger what ifs had this not happened and O'Leary had stayed on as head coach. And I think the biggest one for me was realizing that he brought Bill O'Brien with him as his offensive coordinator, which was something I was not aware of. And now, obviously, he's had quite the career path since then. But even O'Leary was kind of able to revive his career a little bit and, and turn UCF into more of a, a power among those group of five schools. So from your perspective, what do you think maybe changes the most about Notre Dame football if O'Leary somehow stays on as head coach? That's a good question. Um 
I don't know if a lot does change. Um, I think that, you know, as a recruiter, was he going to be dynamic? I'm not, I'm not really sure about that. Um, you know, would have, would Brady Quinn have ended up at Notre Dame? Um, that's a question. Like maybe he had a different quarterback he wanted from, you know, being in the South. Um, cert, I, certainly a lot would have changed. You know, there would have been different names and different faces here on the roster based on recruiting choices. Do I think George O'Leary would have won enough that he would have been a 10-year head coach? Would he have recreated what Brian Kelly has done? I No, I don't think so. But um, certainly it's, it's interesting to look at it from the, you know, would he have recruited, like, would have there been a Jeff Samarja or a Tom Zivikowski or Victor Abiyamir or Trevor Laws? You know, those guys in that 2003 class, maybe that class looks completely different, um, you know, without the change to Tyrone Willingham so quickly after it. But um, I, I don't think that we would be talking about George O'Leary as a national championship head coach at Notre Dame at that time. He seemed, at least the way former players described him, very... It's Lou Holtz-esque in that he was just an angry old man that liked to scream at players and demanded a whole hell of a lot. So I guess I'm kind of surprised that fans didn't want him because they were so attached to Holtz before. And like you said, it's just a few years after. I don't know. I guess I thought uh, fans might like him a little bit more. I mean, they could have. It's, um, you know, he, he definitely fit more of what Notre Dame was about. I think that Kevin White used the term central casting uh, in his description of George O'Leary. I mean, that was spot on, right? Like, that's not a reason to necessarily hire somebody, but he, he fit more what Notre Dame was about at that time. Um, you know, if you would hire, if you hired a George O'Leary type now, you know, when Brian Kelly retires, whenever that is, I think people would be like, what are you doing? Um, you know, the game has evolved. Kids have evolved. College football has evolved since that time. But I think that's why, you know, when you asked about the fan reaction, I think it was just sort of like, okay, we'll sort of see how this goes. I, I don't know if it was really strong one way or the other I, because there was one, there wasn't an urban Meyer that they missed on. Like when they hired Tyrone Willingham, he was really the guy they got because they didn't get urban Meyer. Um, or I'm sorry, Charlie Weiss. When they hired Charlie Weiss, he was the guy they got when they didn't get urban Meyer. Um, with George O'Leary, there really wasn't that other guy um, that you felt like Notre Dame missed on. And I think you looked at his track record and thought, yeah, this could work. He's, he's an offensive minded coach who's old school, who has head coaching experience replacing a defensive minded coach who didn't have head coaching experience, who didn't really fit sort of the Notre Dame mold. So I think in that way, he was probably seen more as like, he's not Bob Davey than, Oh, he, there could, there was another coach out there. Notre Dame could have got. I guess the last question I have for you is when you look back at it and with the benefit of hindsight, where does this rank on the, on the weirdness scale for you in terms of things you've covered at Notre Dame? Um, it's two. I still would put Manti Teo in that um, soap opera number one, because I mean, that's, that's not just a sports story. That's like a Katie Kirk, <laughs> Dr. Phil story. Um, also that happened when there was social media. Um, yeah, I'm thinking back to the George O'Leary time. Like, I didn't hear about cell phone at that time. Um, so if you think about, like, trying to communicate people without cell phones, like, what that would be like. I know you guys cannot imagine such a reality. <laughs> but um, O'Leary is a strong number two. I do, I do not think he, he will be knocked out of that position. Um, I hope, and Frank, I hope that he is not knocked out of that <laughs> position. Uh, 
Um, so that that would be my my power rankings of weird Notre Dame stories that I've covered. I mean, I can't even imagine your mentions if this were to happen. You would have to delete Twitter. Like <laughs> there are no, there were no mentions. I know. Like there was no Twitter. It's nothing. I, yeah. I, if that were to happen today, I, I can't even imagine. But Pete, I know you got stuff to do. We appreciate the time as always. You can check him out at Pete Sampson underscore. And uh, thanks again, man. We'll talk to you soon. Anytime, guys. And that was Pete Sampson of the Athletic discussing his early days on the Notre Dame beat when this George O'Leary saga began and made me realize that he was honestly younger than us when this happened. So that's kind of wild. He said he was like 23. So yeah. that's pretty wild. But I thought that um, was honestly an interesting perspective than what I think we said in the forward a little bit. And maybe that's just because we're so used to social media and how it exaggerates everything. But correct me if you had a different take. My perspective from Pete was that people just kind of seem to think, okay, this happened. Um, we're not going to really react to it. Like, But also, like, news isn't in your f- face 24-7. So I guess when, you know, nobody really knew about it and nobody was getting by the hour, by the minute news like we're so used to nowadays. So while it probably would have been absolutely ridiculous in today's world, it just was kind of just a weird moment back in 2001. Right. And you think about how people consume sports back then. It was so much different than it is now. We were doing research for this. I was looking back at some articles and stuff. And, you know, you got your typical think pieces from the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times, where the national media is picking up on it. I'm sure they spent some time on SportsCenter. But like you said, it kind of it happened. It's super embarrassing still for the school and the university. Like, let's not get that twisted. It, it, was, bru- it was a brutal look. But, yeah, I think people were like, okay, what? What the hell was that? Even the players were like, we rushed this for really no reason. Like Pete was saying, it wasn't like a super hot commodity. But it was like, okay. Went seven and five at Jaw Tech. Yeah, like, okay. Georgia Tech was better back then. I think they, they won the national championship in the early 90s. But yeah, yeah still. But you don't, like, that I think to me would be like Notre Dame hiring James Franklin after their horrible year at Penn State this year. Like it yeah. would be like kind of the same equivalent, maybe, maybe even not as much, but like, that's kind of what I'm thinking about. Yeah. It was super embarrassing. And then it was just like, all right, we didn't, we weren't super attached to him anyway. Like let's get someone better. And they went with Willingham, which I mean, obviously didn't pan out, but it it is interesting how, you know, if this happened today, the, the outcry would have been out of control. But at the time, I think, Fans were still embarrassed, but it was just overall such an embarrassing time. Probably was just like a, just another thing to deal with. Yeah, it really was. Um, and it definitely makes me a little bit more appreciative of what we had today. But like, I thought that was also interesting the way that Pete framed it is that people didn't really know that this was going to be Notre Dame kind of mirrored in mediocrity for the next decade plus. But when I reflect on going to games growing up in middle school and, you know, losing to Air Force at home and <laughs> losing to just, like, shit-ass schools at home, like, and, like, being happy when we would just win a game and now we haven't lost a home game in, what, three years? It's just, it's night and day compared to what we really grew up with. And I'm really grateful for that because, listen, those Notre Dame weekends, that's, those are the weekends that I'm there for. And if we can win every time I'm there, that's, that's, Pretty much the cherry on top, and that's what we've had the last three years. How old were you when you went to your first game? Like 10 months old. 10 months? <laughs> that's yeah, yeah. Okay, first one that you, like, remember. 
first one that I remember is I think the Michigan State game in 2001, which is the first game after 9-11. Okay. My first game was against Navy in 2003. Was that was that the was a DJ Fitzpatrick hits a game winning field goal? Or... <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it was. And like that was the it wasn't just a field goal; it was a field goal against Navy. Notre Dame needed a game winning yeah. field goal to beat Navy, and that was my first game. I was seven years old. I was so 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 happy to be there. And yeah. when my dad recalls it, he's like, "You were the most the happiest person in the entire stadium because they just won a game where everyone else just kind of think like it's fucking Navy." <laughs> I don't. Hey, we need a field goal to win it. I don't know if this was 03 or 04, but the opener, I think it was 04. The opener was against Washington State. Yeah, it would have been 04. No, 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 it would have been 03, actually, because it was 03. Washington State, and they're down like a shitload at half. Like, I'm talking like two, three scores, end up beating Washington State in double overtime, and that was like a huge win for first grade me. And looking back, I think I probably, that game happened in 2021, and we're barely hanging on to beat a Washington State-type <laughs> program. I probably would have punched everybody in the stadium. <laughs> That's the one where Reva McKnight had like the crazy yeah. one-handed thing. That's the only thing I recall. Oh, no, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, that, yeah, so times have definitely changed for the better. And yeah, I think that sort of summarizes partially why we're doing this. It's funny to look back and um, it does make you appreciate how good things are now because it's a decade of mediocrity. And even, you know, after 2010, it wasn't like we figured things out immediately. It took us some time and some bumpy years since then too, but much, much better than yeah, the I mean, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. I mean, our my sophomore and your junior year of college still happened, so there is that. But that was a little bit different. Like, we were just re- reflecting on some of those games in middle school, the Clawson era. You could score a ton of points, but your defense was going to let up 40. And you were just really excited for – I remember being super excited about a last-second drive to beat Purdue on a box out to Kyle Rudolph on fourth and one, beating, like, a Purdue team that ended – probably four and eight that year and now it's we're, we're a little bit um we, we've gotten a little bit spoiled and I'm not complaining about it one bit and while things can be better for sure uh things were definitely not great and when the O'Leary thing went down that kind of sent it on an even deeper spiral yeah I'm looking at it right now that was uh to beat a one and two Purdue team Notre Dame needed to march down the field in the last second in 2009 to go 3-1 to one on the year. But, so that's the first installment as we look back on some of the biggest controversies in Notre Dame football history. That was a fun one. If you guys are interested in us doing you know specific ones, feel free to hit us up on Instagram or Twitter and tell us which ones you want us to investigate because there's a hell of a lot to choose from, <laughs> as sad as that is. Yeah, it's crazy how we often get into these rabbit holes that really – are pretty depressing when you just look at some of the embarrassing things that have kind of happened to this program. But hey, every major college football program has a period like that. People forget when Alabama had Brody Croyle that they lost to NIU. So that wasn't that long ago either. So all I'm saying is, you know, maybe maybe it's it's good to reflect on these sort of moments to to make us feel a little more appreciative of, of what we do have going right now. Absolutely. And Clemson a decade ago was trash. Maybe not trash, but like they weren't nothing. Nothing of importance. Yeah. Uh, they really 
they really, yeah. They, but you know, we kind of sent them on their spiral upward with that Hurricane Joaquin game. So <laughs> go figure. True. All right. Well, we we'll be back again soon next week or in the coming weeks we're going to introduce our writers so again check out the website sonsofsaturday.com we're there new tab where you can check out all our episodes and now a few articles one of which is by our boy luke here and uh we'll continue to update that in the future and uh until then we'll talk to you guys soon